listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Good Friday show for you heading into the weekend. I'm going to talk a little bit about the college football playoff in 2024 because it was brought up yesterday, and I hadn't really thought about this, but I think the system that's in place right now is not going to be the system once we get to 2024. Phil Mickelson is a huge gambler. We've known that. Well, one of the all-time gamblers in the history of gambling, Billy Walters, has a book out, and he exposes Phil for how much Phil gambles, and it was a lot. Talk a little bit more about Hard Knocks and the New York Jets and something about that Johnny Manziel documentary, Untold, on Netflix that I actually didn't put two and two together, but when I was reading a review of it, of what somebody else thought, it clicked in my head. And we'll get to that momentarily. So let's talk right off the bat about college football. And as you know, this is the last year of the four-team playoff. Next year, in 2024, right now, it's going to be a 12-team playoff. It's already been decided. The games have already, the, the dates of the games have already been set. Which bowl games are going to be playing? Those dates have been set. So... What we don't know, obviously, is the 12 teams that make it. And right now, the format is the top six conference, the top six highest ranked conference winners get automatic bids into the 12 team college football playoff. And then the next six are at large bids. So the committee will basically just be filling in six teams instead of four. Six teams will be automatic. In the college football playoff right now, in the four-team playoff, the committee just has to choose which four teams are the best teams. Well, usually when you have conference winners, you pretty much know. Whoever wins the SEC is getting in the college football playoff, unless it was like a four-loss team that pulled an upset, but it's never happened since that started. So next year, the sixth highest-ranked conference champions plus six at-large teams. Well... The Pac-12 is not going to be a conference next year. So now you have the four major conferences, Big Ten, ACC, SEC, Big 12. Those four are definitely getting in. But now there is talk with no more more Pac-12, because that would have been the fifth conference that you guarantee a Pac-12 winner in the playoff, which makes sense. And then the sixth one would be like your best group of five champion automatically gets in. That makes sense. Well, now that there's no Pac-12, do we honestly think that they're going to let in automatically the team that wins the Mountain West and the team that wins, I don't know, the AAC or the MAC? There's already talk that when 2024 rolls around, it might go to a 5-7 model, which is five highest-ranked conference champions and seven at-large. Okay, there's also rumors running around that it might just be, fuck it, 12 best teams are making it. We don't care what you did in your conference championship game. There's that possibility. Because I can tell you right now, the Alabamas of the world and the Georgias of the world and the Clemsons of the world and the Ohio States of the world are not going to want to share the pie with a potential Mountain West champion who automatically gets in. I don't know what it'll eventually be, but I can almost assure you 
that they're not going to give automatic bids now to two conferences that aren't Big 12, ACC, SEC, and Big 10. There's no way. Automatically, no. If they get in on merit because they're ranked fairly high and they're in the top 12, I, I mean, we already know that the top four teams get buys when that happens. And then five plays 12, six plays 11, seven plays 10, and eight plays nine. The top four teams that get buys, we already know is going to be the four conference champions from SEC, Big 10, ACC, and Big 12. It's just going to happen. And you got a school like Notre Dame. What if Notre Dame has a 12-0 season? They can't get a seed higher than five because they're not in a conference. So they might put up a stink about, hey, can we just make it the 12 best teams? And I open it up to you. Should it be the 12 best teams? Why do we have to have conference champions make it? Because what if you have an upset? What if you have a 9 and 3 or 8 and 4 Big 12 team that plays an 11 and 1 Big 12 team for the Big 12 championship and the 8 and 4 team wins? Now, that 11 and 2 team that lost is probably going to get an at large bid and you're forced to put in the 8 and 4 team. So I think we still we obviously still have time. We still got a year before this starts. But I am guaranteeing you right now there's no way it's going to be 6 and 6 come next year. They're going to redo this thing and they're going to figure out a way whether it's five automatic bids to highest ranked conference champions and seven at large or if they do go and just say screw it. We're picking the 12 best teams. Obviously, we'll we'll weight it heavier if you win your conference championship. That'll earn you more points. That looks huge on your resume. But, man, I, there's no way it's going to be 6-6 six and six now with no Pac-12 next year. So just keep that in mind. We're a year away. Uh, but I heard that yesterday, and I was like, that makes sense. And it does. That You, you just you, you can't guarantee uh, the Mountain West winner a spot in your 12-team playoff and giving them the exact same share as some of the other schools. It's, it's not going to happen. Because, as if you've been listening this week, when I talked about that Chip Kelly quote, we are eventually moving to a college football playoff where the Power Five schools are going to be their own division, and the Group of Five schools are going to be their own division, and they're going to have separate champions. It, it's where it's headed. I don't know how many years it's going to take, but we're getting there. That's the way college football is going to be. Let's move on to golf. And it's been known for years that Phil Mickelson had a gambling problem. And not just, oh, he likes to bet a few bucks on the course and even during practice rounds or whatever. No, he had a serious gambling problem where he was betting on things, football, basketball, baseball. He's a big football gambler. Well, there's a book coming out by professional gambler Billy Walters called Gambler Secrets from a Life of Risk. And some people have read some of the excerpts from it. And Billy Walters essentially has been known to have dealings with Phil Mickelson in the past. It's kind of been known that Phil would bet through him or with him. And it, we knew this was coming. This has been in the works for a while. We knew once Billy Walters wrote a book, everyone was talking about how much is he going to expose of Phil. And... Citing betting records and two very reliable sources, Billy Walters wrote that from 2010 to 2014, 
Mickelson made 858 bets of 220,000 and 1,115 bets of 110,000. Walters estimated that Mickelson lost approximately $100 million while betting more than $1 billion over the past three decades. He bet $1 billion. He didn't lose $1 billion because that would be crazy. But losing $100 million, I could totally see that. There's also a story in there that in September of 2012, before the Ryder Cup, Mickelson called Billy Walters and said, I want you to put $400,000 down on the U.S., on us, to beat Europe in the Ryder Cup at Medina. And Walters telling him, are you crazy? You get caught for this, you're Pete Rose. You're going to be suspended and you're going to lose your, you're going to lose your livelihood. And then Walters said he, didn't, he wasn't going to do it for him, said, I want no part of it. Walters said that he didn't know whether Mickelson placed the bet elsewhere. Americans ended up losing to Europe by uh, one point that year. Mickelson said later on yesterday after the story broke in the morning, he would never undermine the integrity of the game. He said, I never bet on the Ryder Cup. And then he said, while it is well known that I always enjoy a friendly wager on the course, I would never undermine the integrity of the game. I have also been very open about my gambling addiction. I have previously conveyed my remorse, took responsibility, have gotten help, have been fully committed to therapy that has positively impacted me, and I feel good about where I am now. Okay. I mean, we don't know. We have no idea if he's curbed his gambling addiction um, or if he's gone completely cold turkey. It doesn't bet at all. There's no way. I don't believe for a second that he doesn't bet at all anymore. But considering if he if this is true and he bet one billion dollars over the course of three decades, it's hard to believe that he would completely stop. My thing is this about the Ryder Cup wager, if it did or didn't happen, we might be just dealing with semantics here. Walters said Mickelson went to him and said, put four hundred thousand dollars down on me on the US to beat Europe. Walters said, not doing it. I want no part of this. And then he said, I don't know whether Phil placed the bet elsewhere. And then Phil said, I never bet on the Ryder Cup. Well, (laughs) maybe he didn't because he couldn't get the bet in. But unless Billy Walters has a recording or some text conversation of Phil saying this, we don't know who to believe. Is it hard to believe that a guy who has allegedly bet $1 billion of bets in a three-year, 30-decade, I'm sorry, three-decade span tried to bet on his own U.S. team? It's not hard for me to believe that, considering how much he was doing behind the scenes. So, But we don't know. So I'm not going to convict Phil for that. And honestly, I don't think, Ryder Cup story aside, I don't think this does anything to Phil Mickelson's career. I think him going to live and saying the things he did about Saudi Arabia and then joining them, I think that has way, way more of a black eye on his golf career than if he were to have bet on his own U.S. team to beat Europe. Because, yeah, he's on the team. Of course he wants to win. If he would have, if we would have found out that he bet Europe, then, that, then we're talking about integrity of the game. And I'm not saying that for every sport. I'm not saying that, oh, well, if an NBA player bets on his own team, there's nothing wrong with that. No, I I get it. I'm just saying in this particular situation, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have really seen, I wouldn't have, like, we know the guy bets thousands and thousands of dollars on football and baseball and basketball. 
for him to say, I want 400000 on us. We're going to beat the Europeans this year. I don't see anything wrong with that. And then in terms of how much he's bet over his career, that's just his personal, that's his deal. You know, his his gambling doesn't affect me. It just doesn't affect you. That's his personal dealings. So I don't think that would have affected anything. And it's not like he's, uh, everybody's known Phil's a huge gambler. Like everybody's known that. So while this story came out and the numbers are probably a little bit bigger than a, a lot of us probably thought, we knew it was thousands and hundreds of thousands, but to hear the word billions of dollars, $1 billion of bets placed over 30 years, it's, yeah, it's a big, it's, it's a big number for sure. And to lose a hundred million, that's a big number. But you also think, well, no wonder he allegedly signed with the Live Tour for two hundred fifty million, just as a fee, as basically a signing bonus, because we all know that he has lost a lot of money. Interesting story. I just don't think it's as big of a deal as anything, because I don't think anything that was written in this book is all that surprising. And it's more of a personal thing. He didn't do anything to the sport itself. So take it for take it for as it is. I mean, maybe some people think differently. I don't know. This is the way I look at it. I just don't think it's a big deal because it had nothing to do with the PGA Tour and screwing them. I think I think him going over to the Live Tour is way more of a mark on his career than than this is. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the two things I talked about yesterday, Hard Knocks and Johnny Manziel. So I'll start with Hard Knocks because this point is a little bit shorter. And that's that I say it every year. Every time anybody watches Hard Knocks, if you're into betting futures because that's the only team you're getting to see behind the scenes of their training camp, you immediately think, wow, this seems good. Oh, look at that guy. Oh, wow, they're going to be good. And Because everything about what HBO is doing and what they do every season, it's not just the Jets is they're not going to show a team and make it seem like they suck. They're going to pump you, pump them up, and it's going to be this, I don't even want to know if you want to call it propaganda, but it almost is sort of a propaganda piece about they're going to show all the good sides of why the Jets are interesting or why they have a chance to be good this year. They're going to focus on Garrett Wilson. They're going to focus on Sauce Gardner. New quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, first time he's rejuvenated. I don't know how much they're going to focus on the fact that their offensive line sucks and they have one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL. Maybe they'll address it. Maybe they won't, but they're not going to spend a lot of time on it and be like, if this offensive line doesn't get their act together, they're a five-win team. No, they're not going to suit. They're not going to say that. So one thing you just got to remember, and overall, since Hard Knocks started, if you bet the team that was on Hard Knocks, if you bet their season total under – you would have won more times than you've lost since it started. I don't know the exact number. I just know if you bet the total under, you would have won more than you lost. Not by a lot. I think it might have been in 20 years, it might be like 12 to 8. 12 unders, 8 overs. Something like that. But I will say this about the Jets. The New York Jets, their win total is 8.5. And people are betting the over already. So they have to go 9 and 8. Barely over 500 for you to win your bet if you bet the over. 
I'm just going to throw this out there. I threw this out there. I think the day we found out the Jets were going to be on hard knocks, I'll just remind you again. The New York Jets have had one winning season since 2011. So just keep that in mind. They have to have a winning season for you to hit your over bet if you think they're going to win over eight and a half games. They've only done that once in the last 12 years. So yet again, it's something to where you probably, if you're betting the numbers, you kind of got to go under. It just doesn't make sense. Why buck the trend? Why say I'm going to take a 12-year sample? And I understand that this year's team has nothing to do with teams in 2011, 2012, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I get it. But it speaks probably more to the organization that it's just not a winning organization. But then again, you could have said the same thing about the Lions last year. You know, the Lions over under was seven, and they ended up going nine and eight. Or maybe it was six and a half. I remember Lions over was one of my biggest, and I went with the hard knocks thing. It's not like I was swayed by hard knocks. It helped, but I just thought they were better than seven and ten. I thought they were going to be seven and ten or better, and they and they were. They were nine and eight. So I, I get that. It, you know, doesn't mean because they've only gone over once in the last twelve years they they can't go over in the year twenty twenty three. But <laughs> tough division, kind of a weak offensive line, good defense, did win seven games last year. If I knew exactly, we'd all be we'd all be millionaires. So we don't know. I'm just telling you my opinion is I think they go under again. I think this is a seven or eight win team and they don't get to nine this year. Last thing I want to talk about was the Johnny Manziel Netflix documentary, Untold Johnny Football, that I talked about yesterday. But one thing I forgot to mention. And I and I just came to my mind when I was reading a review of it, was that remember when they showed briefly the Heisman Trophy uh, ceremony from Manziel's freshman year? You remember who finished second was Manti Te'o. So you had number one and number two in the Heisman, and yet two stories about them ended up being completely false, yet nobody in the journalism world bothered to fact check. With Manziel, it was, oh, he came from money. That's how he's able to fly all around the world and have stacks of $100 bills in his ear and sit courtside at NBA games and go to the Super Bowl and be on the sidelines and drive all these fancy cars because his family came from money. You even saw clips in the documentary, Skip Bayless and Colin Coward, both saying he comes from money. He comes from oil. It's just crazy to think nobody bothered to fact check that back then and realize, no, he didn't. He didn't come from money. He was getting it because he was being paid in cash under the table by autograph people in the memorabilia world. And he was getting it illegally. It's just crazy to think like, oh, we just ran with it. Okay, well, that must be it. His family must have money. And, you know, maybe maybe people didn't want to go looking because they didn't want to know the truth. I don't know. And then obviously with Manti Teo, his whole thing was, hey, my girlfriend died before the football season started. That one I think I can excuse a little bit more because why would you think somebody would make that up? 
The Manziel stuff would have been easy to research. When people are covering college football, they're really not involved in people's personal lives. And when you say that your girlfriend died right before the season started and you're going to dedicate your season to her and your 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 grandmother that died, um, I guess if I'm a journalist, I just kind of go with it because you, you inherently want to believe that people aren't lying about stuff like that. And... The whole thing with Manti is he didn't even bother to do any research on his own girlfriend because he had never met this woman like that. That whole thing is. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but season one of Netflix's Untold series. There was a two part documentary on Manti Teow, which is really good if you want to go watch that and you feel awful for the kid. Yes, he made a mistake. He was young. He was dumb, but he didn't do anything criminal. He was just naive and oblivious. And got taken advantage of by a wacko fan. I mean, a wacko fan who literally, for whatever reason, decided to catfish Manti Teo. It's essentially what it was. It was a catfishing story. He was catfished by a guy pretending to be a woman who pretended to be on the phone with Manti Teo during his years as linebacker at Notre Dame. So, yes, is he dumb for never FaceTiming her and never seeing her in person? Yes, just stupidity. But you go watch that documentary, and then you tell me if you think he's an idiot and, you're, and your whole criticism is towards him. Because I guarantee if whatever you thought of Manti Teo before that documentary, um, I think your opinion will change. Because, man, you feel bad for the guy after all that. I mean, just... It was brutal. And I remember back in 2012, I, even on my bachelor blog and my bachelorette blog, anytime I would throw in a sports take in 2012, it involved Manti Teo, and I was absolutely torching this guy and making fun of him. I remember one of the jokes I told was, you know, that Footprints poem with Jesus, and there's footprints in the sand. I made a joke that that was... That the other that the other person in the poem and the other person in the footprints was Manti Teo's girlfriend. So I mean, I jumped on the train just like everybody else did. But it is kind of weird just to think the top two guys in the Heisman Trophy voting for 2012 both had major things in their past that journalists kind of just let slide and ran with as, oh, this must be true, and it wasn't. Crazy. Anyway, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, Please follow me on Apple Podcast. Also, rate and review if you can. That certainly helps the podcast a lot. Uh, We're back Monday with yet another Sports Daily. We're going to talk more football, maybe start getting into some NFL, more NFL over-unders, not just the New York Jets, of ones that I kind of like, ones that I am leaning towards already this season. So... Everyone, enjoy uh, this weekend. I will be back, like I said, on Monday. Thank you all for listening and supporting this podcast. You don't know how much uh, it means to me. So have a great weekend, everybody, and I'll talk to you on Monday. See you.